0: distinct in our relationships is what we are looking at. And the first question that we have is when was the last time you couldn't hear yourself think? When was the last time you couldn't hear yourself think? Are you sure this is the lesson run? Or did I miss one? We did uh, session three already. We started with session three.
1: I, um, I started on reading because last week we talked about
0: the light, right? The what? Week we were talking about the light. So this should
1: be page 93.
0: What is page 93?
1: Distinct in my approach to conflict, session 3. We
0: did that already? When? We We started with that. Oh, okay. Yeah, we started with we started with session 3. Okay, so we, uh, we, we went back. Mm-hmm. So today we have session four. Yeah. Okay, let's look at uh, Bible Meets Life on page 102. Someone read that, please. Mm-hmm. The world's
1: quietest room is at like all field laboratories and, and in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's a chamber filled with double walls of concrete and insulated <coughs> steel covered by a 3.3 foot thick caustic flat glass edges. It's said that a person can hear his own or own beating heart beating gurgling stomach and even pulsing in the air. Most people can't take the silence for one to 30 minutes. Our lives are filled with noise and we're often comfortable with that. But busy noisy lives can keep us from hearing the truth of what's inside us. Greed, selfishness, lust, and a host of other things are hiding in our hearts. When we recognize the dual threat of both internal and external, we see the gravity of God's call to live pure lives. It's not just a call to purity in terms of our actions, but in our very, our own very being. It's a call for absolute agreement in our thoughts, feelings, and
0: actions. Okay. Notice the point. What is the point? hold on to what? Purity. At all costs, right? So that's the point. And uh, we, look at, we live in a world today where it's important for us to take note of that. Uh, we always need to be in an attitude or in a mindset of confessing the importance and value of purity in today's culture. Because the more we get on in our world, the more things uh, continue to get worse and worse. Challenging our walk uh, to live in a fuller sense of of holding on to purity. There are some people who believe today that the devastation of Hurricane Joaquin was a direct result of the carnival last year. (laughs) There are people who believe that. You know, they said that because of the degradation that the nation uh, slipped into, uh, God judged the nation with that hurricane. We don't know. Only eternity would reveal that. But they're going on with Carnival again, so we'll see. We'll see when the next hurricane season comes. If God needs to uh, give us another little nudge, Okay, let's look at the passage on page um, uh, Matthew chapter five. Someone read uh, verses twenty-seven to thirty, page one hundred three, please.
2: You have heard that it was said, do not, mit, "Do not commit adultery." But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust or, um, has already committed adultery without in his heart. If you, if your right eye causes you to sin cut it out and throw it away for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away for it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to to go into hell
0: Okay, now notice uh get some context and the background of what Jesus is saying here. Uh, Jesus, following his interpretation of the sixth commandment related to murder, he moved to reveal the full implications of the seventh commandment on sexual purity and marital faithfulness. So when we look at verses 20 to 28, we know that the traditional teaching that Jesus began which comes from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 and also Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 18. So Jesus is using the Old Testament here when he quotes this. And, 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 and those passages talk about, do not commit adultery. The goal of the Mosaic instruction was to preserve the physical sanctity of marriage in the relationship. And so Jesus, however, revealed that the true intent of the commandment with the words, but I tell you, you know, the commandment says this, but this is what I am telling you, or this is what I am saying to you. Words that reflect a far greater authority than any human could claim before him or even sense him. And so he says, you know, the commandment said this, but listen, let me tell you what I say. Let me tell you what I'm saying. And so the full implication of the commandment involved mind as well as body. Everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whereas the original commandment focused on the physical act. Jesus began with the eyes. Everyone who looks, he says. And this phrase in the Greek is a, what we call a present participle. Giving the sense of everyone can, who continues to look. And that's the, 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 the expression he's using here. Perhaps everyone who goes on looking. Jesus was not referring to just a momentary glance. He's talking about a person who continues to steer. He's talking about a, a longing with a lust. That's what he's talking about. And not only uh, the eyes involved, but the heart as well. The language of committing adultery with, your, with, with, with her in his heart emphasizes that God judges not only our deeds... But he also judges our thoughts and our intentions. And so remember there were a couple of occasions when Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees. And the Bible says he knew what they were thinking. Or he knew their thoughts. But God knows the intents and the thoughts of our hearts. And so we really can't swing God like people try to do. They, try this. they say one thing when they actually mean something else, but God looks beyond what they say, and He looks at the heart. He knows the thoughts and intents of the heart. So in both the Old and New Testaments, the term heart is used as the seat of human emotion. From the heart, we do a number of things. From the heart, we grieve. From the heart, we have desire. We rejoice, and we have compassion. All of those come from the heart. The heart is the center of our moral and spiritual life. And so Jesus knew well that behind the overt actions lies character and motive. He knows that. And so we really can't swing God like we swing somebody else on earth. Behavior flows from the heart. And so Jesus redefined adultery by moving it merely from the physical act to the heart's desire. Okay, verse uh, 29 to 30. Well, let's look at uh, the next question, question number two. What are the dividing lines between, between pure and impure in, th- in today's world? What are the dividing lines between pure and impure in today's world? Are there any? No. <laughs> Okay, that so those dividing lines are disappearing real fast, right? Sometimes you look and you wonder, what's going on? Uh, some of the commercials you see and, and so on and some of the things that people do. And then this carnival thing, that's another one. You know, the dividing lines are no, almost no longer there. They're, they're, they're disappearing real fast. Okay, someone read the uh, paragraphs on page 104, please.
1: There is no doubt about it, sex is a powerful force in today's world. Sex sells, but why? The answer is that sex was designed to be the most pure, the most uninhabited, and the most unashamed kind of intimacy imaginable. God intended it to be an act in which a person is both known and fully knows another person without shame, holding nothing back. But like everything else in the world, sex has been corrupted. Instead of serving as an expression of love and intimacy, sex has become a tool of personal gratification at the expense of another human being. This brings us to the topic of purity. In Matthew 5, Jesus taught that true purity isn't just a matter of abstaining from sinful sex. It's a condition of the heart that must be corrected. Called us to, the, to engage in the fight for purity at any cost. In verses 29 to 30, he gave us a battle plan to pursue kind of purity. Identifying the source, Jesus told us to root out the source of impurity. His vivid illustrations involve the eyes and the hand, but we might think about temptation in terms of other sources. Are you tempted by images you see on your computer or television? Does a certain relationship or habit trouble you? Do you struggle during a period of time you have to spend alone? Deal ruthlessly with temptation. According to Jesus, if your eye causes us to sin, we should gouge it out. If it's a hand, we should cut it off. Though that might sound extreme, the reason is simple. When you consider what's at stake, you'll do whatever it takes to protect your purity. When you consider that these patterns of behavior, if left unchecked, cause you to fall under God's judgment, then you'll start taking them a little more seriously.
0: Okay. Question number three. So we get a bottom line there. Three things, identify the source, deal ruthlessly with temptation, and replace the temptation with something better. Right? There's always an alternative. There's always something better. Question number three. How can you ruthless how can you be ruthless in resisting impurity without being judgmental and condemning? How can we do that? Because I guess no matter how you do it, sometimes people will see it as condemning, right? They have freedom, they have uh, free to do whatever they feel like doing, and then if you tell them what they're doing is not right, then they tell you you're, you're judging them. How many times have we heard that, right? So, how can we be ruthless and resistant impurity without being judgmental and condemning? Stay away. Hmm?
2: Stay away.
0: Okay. Resistance, right? Mm-hmm. Now there's an exercise on page 104, Seeking seeking Sources. And that's something that you, that's a private exercise that you can do, uh, to... 104? 105. But okay.
2: Sister
0: so Nancy
2: needed to read another thing on top of 105, and not replace the temptation with something there. She, she was supposed to finish that.
0: Yes, you missed that that, Eight. Yes. Replace the temptation with something better. You want to read that?
2: Don't focus on not thinking in pure thoughts. Focus instead on something better. Find something constructive to do for the kingdom. With your time. Don't avoid left by temptation with something more. Something better. The more you won't have to in and soon. You do have to invest the mental energy to not think about whatever it was that caused you to struggle. It's being replaced.
0: Okay, so we see the battle plan, they identify the source, deal ruthlessly with the temptation, and replace the temptation with something better. So we have an action that we can take uh, when we get into a situation like that. Okay, let's again go to Matthew chapter 5, read verse 31 to 33 on page 103. Please.
2: It was also said, whoever washes his wife must give her a written notice of the wash. But I tell you, everyone who washes his wife, except in the case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And
0: who ever marries a divorced woman commits adultery? Okay, we have, you notice the, the definition there, a written notice of divorce, verse 31. The Greek translated here originally carries a sense of abandonment of property. Mm-hmm. Then, in Jewish circles, the term acquired the meaning of a certificate of divorce, given to a woman so she could remarry without charge of adultery. So we have, a def- we have an explanation there in terms of what a written notice of divorce is so that we can understand the context a little bit better. Okay, let's look at the paragraphs on page 106. Someone wanna read that, please?
3: created our bodies and He gave us our human needs and desires as integral parts of those bodies. God also gave us good and right avenues to fulfill those desires. Sin happens when we seek to satisfy a God-given desire through an unholy avenue. Instead of turning to the God-given avenues, of fulfilling those desires, return to whatever is easiest or most convenient or the less costly. In verse 31, Jesus brought marriage in his discussion of purity. Marriage is the physical and spiritual union between a man and a woman. page 106. Lifetime.
0: Go ahead. Yeah.
3: It is the one and holy way God has given us to express and fulfill sexual desires. Unfortunately, marriage like sex has fallen under the shadow of sin. God intended the marriage covenant to be a reflection of the covenant He he makes with His own people and therefore to be unbroken. Because of sin, however, marriages have failed to live up to God's standard verse 31 Jesus quoted from the Old Testament law Deuteronomy 24 1 In this particular law a man was required to produce a divorce certificate instead of just arbitrarily deciding he didn't want to be married anymore this provision was instituted to provide legal protection for the divorced woman since woman had Few rights in that culture, the little ability to provide for themselves without this stipulation, a man could threaten to divorce his wife and leave her destituted. Even though the law was designed to protect women, the rabbis, rabbis, yeah, rabbis and religious leaders of Jesus' day had distorted this law to allow divorce for even minor complaints. What was designed to be good was being used to abuse.
0: Okay, so thank you. Notice a uh, couple of high points there. Uh, the men would uh, use minor issues as complaints to file for divorce. But it was, I don't like the way you cook it, so I can divorce you. All right, I don't like the way you clean the house, so I'm going to divorce you. Things, minor stuff like that is what the men used in those days. And so a couple of the high points that we make note of is sin happens when we seek to satisfy God-given desires through an unholy avenue. God has a way for us to do everything. When we do it contrary to God's way, it becomes a sin uh, before God. And then uh, in verse 31, Jesus brought marriage into his discussion of purity. Unfortunately, marriage, like sex, has fallen under the shadow of sin. And it was not intended to be that way uh, by God. It started in the Garden of Eden. uh, When uh, Adam and Eve uh, sinned, and then their eyes were opened, and they discovered that they were naked, and they got fig leaves to cover themselves. That's where it started. And notice, uh, um, when we look at verses 30 and 31... Jesus transitioned from, naturally from the call to sexual purity to the issue of divorce. The issue of divor- adultery and divorce belonged together in Jesus' mind, the two like two sides of the coin in the mind of Jesus. He began with the teaching found in Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses, where Moses gave instructions regarding the granting of a bill of divorce this particular Old Testament context had caused a great deal of debate during Jesus' day between competing schools of rabbinic interpretation just like there are competing schools today. Uh, People have one interpretation, another school have a different interpretation. The critical issue was what what constituted the grounds of divorce. The Hebrew phrase from verse 1 something improper literally means nakedness of a thing or an indecent thing. The ambiguity of the phrase left the door open for radically different interpretations. In the first century, the school of Shammai interpreted the phrase literally as referring specifically to sexual immorality, namely adultery. The more moderate school of Hillel interpreted the phrase broadly, Concluding that anything about the wife that displeased the husband provided grounds for divorce, even the failure to complete domestic tasks such as cooking or cleaning. Okay, they use that for grounds of divorce, you know. um, And so it's important that when interpreting Jesus' teaching on divorce, that we understand the backdrop of this rabbinic debate. It is not surprising that Jesus would take a position on such an important and complex issue. Jesus first acknowledged the traditional teaching found in Deuteronomy chapter 24 when he said, Whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. And then when we look at verse 32, Jesus then argued forcefully that A man is not to divorce his wife for if he does, he makes her an adulteress as well as the man she marries. The thinking seems to be that if a man divorces his wife, she will almost certainly end up remarrying another man. When she does, she has committed adultery because in God's eyes she is still married to her original husband. This also makes the subsequent Husband, an adulterer, since he is now married to a woman who remains joined to, a, to her original husband in God's eyes. And so, as a result, the second marriage is a violation of the seventh commandment do not commit adultery, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. And so, in this brief statement on divorce uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus provided little argument for his conclusion. Later in Matthew, however, The issue comes up again when the Pharisees use it in an effort to force Jesus to choose sides between the two schools of rabbinical law, Shammai and Hillel. And they were always doing stuff like that to try to trick Jesus into making decisions. They said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Matthew 19. Jesus provided the same response as he did in this passage. But in Matthew 19... He provided the biblical basis for his conclusion. He went on to explain that Moses granted divorce, certificates of divorce, on the, principle that hum, on the principle that human beings were fallen and suffered from hardness of heart. In other words, he says, Moses granted the certificate of divorce because you people are so stubborn and hard-headed. The man didn't have a choice. That's the point that he's making. But it was never, God never intended for it to be so. Remember Moses was the, was the judge. Whenever people had issues and stuff like that, they would come to Moses and Moses would hear the case, just like a normal judge in the court today would do. He would hear the case and then he would go to God. He would say, okay, I need to adjourn on this. Just like judges do today. And he'd go to God and he says, Lord, these people brought this to me. What do you think I should do? And God would give him the answer and he called the people back together and he says, okay, this is the judgment of God. God says, this is what you ought to do. Well, it would be good if judges did that today. Eh? But that's what Moses did. And that's why Moses' father-in-law, when he came to him and he saw what Moses was doing, he says, man, Moses, these people can kill you. You can't take all this stuff on yourself. You need to get some people to help you. And then he instituted the part where Moses would get uh, what they call, um, we call them today magistrates. Because that's what it amounted to. He've got, he said, appoint these different people and they would judge the small matters. And when the big stuff come up, let them bring the big stuff to you. So, Moses, uh, God gave Moses, the uh, uh, Moses' father-in-law instituted the idea of supreme court justice. And so Moses, in in a sense, became a supreme court justice, and all the other small matters came to people like magistrates. Uh, but But Moses had the job of making these judgments because God had appointed him to do so. And so, Jesus uh, employed God's original intention in creation as expressed in Genesis 1 as a starting point in his instructions. Okay, question number four on page 106. Who do you look to as a model of faithfulness? Who do you look to as a model of faithfulness? Is this someone that you look to as a model of faithfulness in your life? When you, to, when you think the word faithfulness, who is the person that comes to mind that you would more intentionally lead toward?
3: Mother Anybody? Teresa.
0: Huh? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Who's that? Huh?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's my natural.
0: Okay. Anybody else? She's my
2: dad.
0: My dad. Okay, your father. All right.
2: Billy Graham. Billy Graham. As he's, you know, all the years that he's ministered, never any kind of scandal or anything. And he's been faithful, and he's getting close to
0: 100 years. Ago. Yeah, I would think Billy Graham too. Uh, that's the person that comes to my mind, you know, uh, especially when he, how he, things set out for him. He he, he set parameters and guidelines to protect himself okay. so that no one would ever accuse him of anything. You know, so I yeah, uh, I would think of uh, I would also think of uh, Rex Major as well in terms of uh, locally, because I've had some experiences with him where he exercised that kind of faithfulness as well. Okay, um, page one o seven. Jesus called us back to. The sacred nature of marriage. He did give one exception, however. Divorce may be permitted if a spouse is unfaithful to the marriage. That doesn't mean Jesus condones divorce. In fact, it means the opposite. God loves and values marriage highly as a covenant relationship. A marriage can be ended only if someone is unfaithful. Faithfulness is so important that if violated, God will allow a covenant that was established before him to be ended. What can we learn from these verses? Jesus is telling us to hold on to marriage, commit to it, don't run, but stay faithful. Keep the following in mind. Marriage is difficult. Marriage is difficult because we confront the depth of our selfishness. When we truly have to put someone else's needs ahead of our own, we discover where our commitments lie. And then, secondly, marriage is supported. No couple faces the challenges of marriage alone. God is with us. And God is for us. He is pro-marriage. In fact, he is so much in favor of marriage that that he shows the relationship between a husband and wife Uh, to to represent his own relationship with his people, according to Revelation 19 and, and also 21 and 22. And then thirdly, marriage is an opportunity for growth. God uses difficulties within marriage to make us more like Jesus. Marriage, the most intimate relationship, is the ideal place to display and practice the fruit of the Spirit. That is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness, self-control. Best place to exercise them is in marriage. You always get a challenge to do that. Okay, question number five. How do we love God and love others in a culture of divorce? How do we do that?
2: If If you really love God, love is love. When you very really
0: love God, nothing else matters. And nothing can, can impact that or, or affect it in a negative way. That you can't even move you. Because you love you
2: Love is love. You, you can't need to Love is love. Mm-hmm. You can't stop loving
0: God. You can't stop loving God. Okay.
2: You won't want one, so you hurt it. If you love someone, you wouldn't want to hurt it. So if you really love version of you, know, you do this, it's hurting. It. So you don't want to do it.
0: Okay, so the goal of this question in our minds ought to be to communicate how we... The goal of the question is is to show how we communicate and how we support a biblical standard for marriage without alienating those on the inside and outside of the church who have personal experience with divorce. Okay, so you don't want to offend somebody on the inside or outside, or outside of the church rather who have had a personal experience with divorce.
2: And we need to remember that God forgives them. Exactly. And we should be forgiving as well. Right. And, and uh, show love to everyone, mm-hmm. no matter what
0: their situation is Exactly. And not resort to judgmentalism.
2: And you know, I think, especially in years gone by, Christians have been so judgmental and it's left a a kind of a bad taste in the mouths of some people Mm -hmm. and we need to be good examples of loving uh, you know as God
0: Yeah, sometimes the whole church gets condemned because individuals exhibit uh, lack of love and sometimes uh, that lack of love comes from um, uh, being so hard and fast uh, to what they think is right that it doesn't, they don't care how it affects anybody else uh, individually. And as a result, the whole kingdom of God gets a black eye. I guess
2: we call that legalism.
0: Legalism. That's the word I was looking for, legalism. Uh, there are some people who can be so legalistic mm-hmm. uh, that love gets thrown out of the window. You, we say you throw the baby with the bath water. Okay. Um, in keeping with the school of, well, let's move on to the point. because the time is wrapping up here. Uh, okay, let's look at the, the point again is that See if there's something else we want to use. Okay, God. Ultimately, God's it's God's will that His people abstain from sexual immorality and even divorce. Regrettably, as we destroy marriage through unfaithfulness, we present a distorted image to the world of Christ's love for the church. And then and, and as a result of that, you get people saying, "Well, I don't want to be a Christian." Those people can't even seem to get it together in the church. All right? And, uh, and, uh, and so marriage becomes what is called fashionable instead of what God has ordained, and so people get married and divorced like you change clothes. Even as we acknowledge the reality that human beings often fall short of God's ideal, may we fervently resist unfaithfulness and sexual immorality that leads to divorce. In contrast to contemporary culture, Let us passionately advocate for the sanctity of biblical marriage as we hold on to purity at all costs. The point, hold on to purity at all costs. That's the point that we want to get from this study today. Hold on to purity no matter what it costs. Okay, how do we apply this then as we live this out in in our world today? The following suggestions on page 108. Holding on to purity isn't always easy, but it's always valuable. Consider the following suggestions for seeking purity this week. Replace. What is one way you are spending your time that is not contributing to your personal purity? Look for something to replace it this week. Okay, so there are always some things that we are doing that will not contribute to purity. Look for something to replace it with. And then serve. Consider a practical way you can serve your spouse this week. The example, intentionally do the one thing around the house your spouse doesn't enjoy doing. (laughs) Whatever your wife doesn't enjoy doing, you do it. I did that some some years ago. I can't remember how long ago I did that. (laughs) My wife doesn't like cleaning the bathrooms. So for the last probably 20 years, I've been cleaning the bathroom because she doesn't like doing that. And so that's what this exercise calls us to do. Do something that your wife doesn't like to do. Talk. (laughs) Begin the process of accountability by letting your guard down with someone you trust. Initiate a conversation with that person and share one way in which you are struggling to hold on to purity at all costs.